Writing on War and Living in a World from Hell. Written by Chris Hedges for the Chris Hedges Report. ChrisHedges.substack.com. Narrated by Eunice Wong. As this century began, I was writing War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, my reflections on two decades as a war correspondent, 15 of them with the New York Times in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, Bosnia, and Kosovo. I worked in a small, sparsely furnished studio apartment on First Avenue in New York City. The room had a desk, chair, futon, and a couple of bookshelves, not enough to accommodate my extensive library, leaving piles of books stacked against the wall. The single window overlooked a back alley. The super, who lived in the first-floor apartment, smoked prodigious amounts of weed, leaving the grimy lobby stinking of pot. When he found out I was writing a book, he suggested I chronicle his moment of glory during the six days of clashes known as the Stonewall Riots, triggered by a 1969 police raid on the Stonewall Inn, a gay club in Greenwich Village. He claimed he had thrown a trash can through the front window of a police cruiser. It was a solitary life, broken by periodic visits to a small antique bookstore in the neighborhood that had a copy of the 1910-1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, the last edition published for scholars. I couldn't afford it, but the owner generously let me read entries from those 29 volumes, written by the likes of Algernon Charles Swinburne, John Muir, T.H. Huxley, and Bertrand Russell. The entry for Catullus, several of whose poems I could recite from memory in Latin, read, The Greatest Lyric Poet of Rome. I loved the certainty of that judgment, one that scholars today would not, I suspect, make, much less print. There were days when I couldn't write. I would sit in despair, overcome by emotion, unable to cope with a sense of loss, of hurt, and the hundreds of violent images I carry within me. Writing about war was not cathartic. It was painful. I was forced to unwrap memories carefully swaddled in the cotton wool of forgetfulness. The advance on the book was modest, $25,000. Neither the publisher nor I expected many people to read it, especially with such an ungainly title. I wrote out of a sense of obligation, a belief that, given my deep familiarity with the culture of war, I should set it down. But I vowed, once done never to willfully dredge up those memories again. To the publisher's surprise, the book exploded. Hundreds of thousands of copies were eventually sold. Big publishers, dollar signs in their eyes, dangled significant offers for another book on war. But I refused. I didn't want to dilute what I had written or go through that experience again. I didn't want to be ghettoized into writing about war for the rest of my life. I was done. To this day, I'm still unable to reread it. The Open Wound of War Yet, it's not true that I fled war. I fled my wars, but would continue to write about other people's wars. I know the wounds and scars. I know what's often hidden. I know the anguish and guilt. It's strangely comforting to be with others maimed by war. We don't need words to communicate. Silence is enough. I wanted to reach teenagers, the fodder of wars and the target of recruiters. I doubted many would read War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. I embarked on a text that would pose and then answer the most basic questions about war, all from military, medical, tactical, and psychological studies of combat. I operated on the assumption that the simplest and most obvious questions rarely get answered, like, what happens to my body if I'm killed? 
I hired a team of researchers, mostly graduate students at Columbia University's School of Journalism, and in 2003, we produced an inexpensive paperback. I fought the price down to $11 by giving away any future royalties, called What Every Person Should Know About War. I worked closely on the book with Jack Wheeler, who had graduated from West Point in 1966 and then served in Vietnam, where 30 members of his class were killed. Rick Atkinson's The Long Gray Line, The American Journey of West Point's Class of 1966, is the story of Jack's class. Jack went on to Yale Law School after he left the military and became a presidential aide to Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush, while chairing the drive to build the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. He struggled with what he called the open wound of Vietnam and severe depression. He was last seen on December 30, 2010, disoriented and wandering the streets of Wilmington, Delaware. The next day, his body was discovered as it was dumped from a garbage truck into the Cherry Island landfill. The Delaware State Medical Examiner's Office said the cause of death was assault and blunt force trauma. Police ruled his death a homicide, a murder that would never be solved. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. The idea for the book came from the work of Harold Roland Shapiro, a New York lawyer who, while representing a veteran disabled in World War I, investigated that conflict, discovering a huge disparity between its reality and the public perception of it. His book was, however, difficult to find. I had to get a copy from the Library of Congress. The medical descriptions of wounds, Shapiro wrote, rendered all that I had read and heard previously as being either fiction isolated reminiscence, vague generalization, or deliberate propaganda. He published his book, What Every Young Man Should Know About War, in 1937. Fearing it might inhibit recruitment, he agreed to remove it from circulation at the start of World War II. It never went back into print. The military is remarkably good at studying itself, although such studies aren't easy to obtain. It knows how to use operant conditioning, the same techniques used to train a dog, to turn young men and women into efficient killers. It skillfully employs the tools of science, technology, and psychology to increase the lethal force of combat units. It also knows how to sell war as adventure, as well as the true route to manhood, comradeship, and maturity. The callous indifference to life, including the lives of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, leapt off the pages of the official documents. For example, the response to the question, what will happen if I am exposed to nuclear radiation but do not die immediately, was answered in a passage from the Office of the Surgeon General's Textbook of Military Medicine that read, in part, fatally irradiated soldiers should receive every possible palliative treatment, including narcotics, to prolong their utility and alleviate their physical and psychological distress. Depending on the amount of fatal radiation, such soldiers may have several weeks to live and to devote to the cause. Commanders and medical personnel should be familiar with estimating survival time based on onset of vomiting. Physicians should be prepared to give medications to alleviate diarrhea and to prevent infection and other sequelae of radiation sickness in order to allow the soldier to serve as long as possible. The soldier must be allowed to make the full contribution to the war effort. He will already have made the ultimate sacrifice. He deserves a chance to strike back, and to do so while experiencing as little discomfort as possible. 
Our book, as I hoped, turned up on Quaker anti-recruitment tables in high schools. I am sullied. I was disgusted by the simplistic, often mendacious coverage of our post-9-11 war in Iraq, a country I had covered as a Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. In 2007, I went to work with reporter Leila Alarian on a long investigative article in The Nation, The Other War, Iraq Veterans Bear Witness, that ended up in an expanded version as another book on war, Collateral Damage, America's War Against Iraqi Civilians. We spent hundreds of hours interviewing 50 American combat veterans of Iraq about atrocities they had witnessed or participated in. It was a damning indictment of the U.S. occupation, with accounts of terrorizing and abusive house raids, withering, suppressing fire routinely laid down in civilian areas to protect American convoys, indiscriminate shooting from patrols, the large kill radius of detonations and airstrikes in populated areas, and the slaughter of whole families who approached military checkpoints too closely or too quickly. The reporting made headlines in newspapers across Europe, but was largely ignored in the U.S., where the press was generally unwilling to confront the feel-good narrative about liberating the people of Iraq. For the book's epigraph, we used a June 4, 2005 suicide note left by Colonel Theodore Ted Westhussing for his commanders in Iraq. Westhussing, whom I was later told had read and recommended War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, was the honor captain of his 1983 West Point class. He shot himself in the head with his 9mm Beretta service revolver. His suicide note, think of it as an epigraph for the global war on terror, read in part, Thanks for telling me it was a good day until I briefed you. Redacted name. You are only interested in your career and provide no support to your staff, no mission support, and you don't care. I cannot support a mission that leads to corruption, human rights abuses, and liars. I am sullied. No more. I didn't volunteer to support corrupt, money-grubbing contractors, nor work for commanders only interested in themselves. I came to serve honorably and feel dishonored. The war in Ukraine raised the familiar bile, the revulsion at those who don't go to war and yet revel in the mad, destructive power of violence. Once again, by embracing a childish binary universe of good and evil from a distance, war was turned into a morality play, gripping the popular imagination. Following our humiliating defeat in Afghanistan and the debacles of Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen— here was a conflict that could be sold to the public as restoring American virtue. Russian President Vladimir Putin, like Iraqi autocrat Saddam Hussein, instantly became the new Hitler. Ukraine, which most Americans undoubtedly couldn't have found on a map, was suddenly the front line in the eternal fight for democracy and liberty. The orgiastic celebration of violence took off. The Ghosts of War it is impossible under international law to defend Russia's war in Ukraine, as it's impossible to defend our invasion of Iraq. Preemptive war is a war crime, a criminal war of aggression. Still, putting the invasion of Ukraine in context was out of the question. Explaining, as Soviet specialists, including famed Cold War diplomat George F. Kennan had, that expanding NATO into Central and Eastern Europe was a provocation to Russia— was forbidden. Kennan had called it 
the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era that would send Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. In 1989, I had covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania that signaled the coming collapse of the Soviet Union. I was acutely aware of the cascade of assurances given to Moscow that NATO, founded in 1949 to prevent Soviet expansion in Eastern and Central Europe, would not spread beyond the borders of a unified Germany. In fact, with the end of the Cold War, NATO should have been rendered obsolete. I naively thought we would see the promised peace dividend, especially with the last Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev reaching out to form security and economic alliances with the West. In the early years of Vladimir Putin's rule, even he lent the U.S. military a hand in its war on terror, seeing in it Russia's own struggle to contain Islamic extremists spawned by its wars in Chechnya. He provided logistical support and resupply routes for American forces fighting in Afghanistan. But the pimps of war were having none of it. Washington would turn Russia into the enemy, with or without Moscow's cooperation the newest holy crusade between angels and demons was launched. War unleashes the poison of nationalism with its twin evils of self-exaltation and bigotry. It creates an illusory sense of unity and purpose. The shameless cheerleaders who sold us the war in Iraq are once again on the airwaves, beating the drums of war for Ukraine. As Edward Said once wrote about these courtiers to power, Every single empire in its official discourse has said that it is not like all the others, that its circumstances are special, that it has a mission to enlighten, civilize, bring order and democracy, and that it uses force only as a last resort. And sadder still, there always is a chorus of willing intellectuals to say calming words about benign or altruistic empires, as if one shouldn't trust the evidence of one's own eyes— watching the destruction and the misery and death brought by the latest Mission Civilisatrice. I was pulled back into the morass. I found myself writing for Sheer Post and my Substack site, columns condemning the bloodlusts Ukraine unleashed, the provision of more than $50 billion in weapons and aid to Ukraine, not only means the Ukrainian government has no incentive to negotiate, but that it condemns hundreds of thousands of innocents to suffering and death. For perhaps the first time in my life, I found myself agreeing with Henry Kissinger, who at least understands realpolitik, including the danger of pushing Russia and China into an alliance against the U.S. while provoking a major nuclear power. Greg Ruggiero, who runs City Lights Publishers, urged me to write a book on this new conflict. At first I refused, not wanting to resurrect the ghosts of war. But looking back at my columns, articles, and talks since the publication of War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning in 2002, I was surprised at how often I had circled back to war. I rarely wrote about myself or my experiences. I sought out those discarded as the human detritus of war, the physically and psychologically maimed, like Thomas Young, a quadriplegic wounded in Iraq, whom I visited recently in Kansas City after he declared that he was ready to disconnect his feeding tube and die. It made sense to put those pieces together to denounce the newest intoxication with industrial slaughter. I stripped the chapters down to war's essence with titles like The Act of Killing, Corpses, or When the Bodies Come Home.
The Greatest Evil is War has just been published by Seven Stories Press. This, I pray, will be my final foray into the subject. That was Writing on War and Living in a World from Hell, written by Chris Hedges, narrated by Eunice Wong. For the Chris Hedges Report, chrishedges.substack.com.